Well, it is such an honor to be asked to fill the pulpit today for my friend Tom, and I'm just so grateful for his ministry here. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to preach almost a month's worth of Sundays here at Coleman, and, and the church was, was not in the greatest place at that time. And to see with, for myself today what God is doing in this church, folks, you ought to praise him for it. It's alive. I preach in a lot of dead churches, all right, throughout the year. This is refreshing. So I just thank God for what he's doing here at Coleman's First Baptist Church. You are a blessing. I'll, I bring you greetings on behalf of Sanford University, on our, our, behalf of our president, Dr. Beck Taylor, and our almost 6,000 students who call Sanford home uh, this semester. Um, I love coming to Coleman for a whole lot of reasons. I have great friendships up here. A lot of Sanford alums uh, live up this way and um, Sanford parents. Uh, and Johnny's Barbecue is here. So there you go. That's really actually probably why I really like coming, but uh, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hosea? We're going to be in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 14. I want to kind of give you the full spectrum this morning of what the book of Hosea is about and why, why it's worth knowing. The book of Hosea really is the story of the radical, resilient love of God. The prophetic uh, book certainly has a narrative form to it because there is a story that is woven within it on how God uh, chooses Hosea to be a prophet in, uh, with his people and in so doing, he asks him to do something that's a little unusual quite unusual and frankly quite provocative Hebrews or I'm sorry Hosea chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 is where I want to begin this morning so if I want to ask if you're physically able would you stand with me in the reading of God's word this morning Hosea chapter 1 and listen to these first verses it says this the word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would use me this morning to proclaim your word. Speak to every heart here today. I pray for my friend Tom this morning as he preaches uh, in, in New York, I, I ask you to use him in a mighty way as well. But Father, at this moment, at this time, may your love permeate our hearts that we could really grasp today the height and width and depth and breadth of the resilient, radical love of God as seen in the book 
of Hosea. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Verse 1 of Hosea kind of sets the stage for us. It gives us kind of a historical context of the world in which Hosea was called to be a prophet in by giving us the names of of these kings, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of of Israel. And then what's really amazing to me is we, we really know nothing about the prophet Hosea. I mean, we don't have a lot of background about this guy. It's kind of a mystery to us. We know his dad's name uh, here from the story, but, but outside that, we, we really don't know much else about him. And what's also, to me, amazing about this is that like, there's no story in which God introduces himself to Hosea. Like, we, don't, we don't see God really presenting himself to Hosea like we see, for instance, in in, in Isaiah, uh, to Hosea, like we see in Isaiah. You know, in Isaiah, God at least, you know, kind of shows up there and tells him a little about, you know, who, who he is and what he wants to do. And, and then in Isaiah 6, we have this kind of dramatic calling narrative that takes place there. But here in Hosea, it's just like God says, boom, here's what I want you to do. Like, like, as a matter of fact, when you see in verse 2, it says, when the Lord began to speak by Hosea. So, I mean, literally, this is the first thing that God says to this prophet. And what he says to him by way of a calling is pretty difficult. I mean, I think all gospel callings are, are somewhat difficult. Like, there's always kind of this... You know, God calls us into some type of conflict, you know, and then some type of, of, of issue uh, in order to do his ministry. But this is extreme. I mean, the calling that we see here is, wow. So when you look at how God calls people in the Old Testament, particularly prophets in the Old Testament, this is not totally surprising, though. I mean, for example, in, in, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 23 through 5, he commands Isaiah to walk about uh, naked and barefoot for three years as a sign of the ex- exile that's coming. Now, that's, that's a tough calling, right? That's got to be difficult in January. Um, I'm glad I didn't do that anymore. That would make this sermon much more difficult to deliver and much more uncomfortable for you. Uh, but, but you look in Ezekiel chapters 4 and 5, Ezekiel was commanded to lay on his side for over a year near a, a small model of Jerusalem under, under siege. And then you, know, you look at Ezekiel chapter 24, he's forbidden to mourn when his wife dies. I mean, that's, that's tough. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 16 too, Jeremiah is told not to marry. So sometimes these callings that God gives his people are tough. But the calling that God gives Hosea is like next level tough because he's calling Isaiah, or Hosea to go literally all in. He's like, I want you to go all in. Look again at this, at, at this calling here. When he says, I, I want you to go take uh, for yourself a wife of harlotry, of ill repute. See, in calling Hosea to take this wife of ill repute, he was essentially asking Hosea to experience the same hurt that God was feeling for his people. In other other words, Hosea, I want you to be a living illustration of a resilient lover whose bride is constantly unfaithful. 
who constantly is running into the arms of other lovers. But meanwhile, while she is being provocative and while she is being promiscuous and while she's being unfaithful, Hosea, I want you just to stay there and be faithful and continue to love someone that will never really respond back to you that way. That's a hard calling. In other words, I want you to go all in here, Hosea. And not only that, like when you read chapter 1, you keep reading chapter 1, you find out that, you know, Hosea and and Gomer, his, his wife, they're having children, and then the children's names uh, are kind of prophetic in relation to God's, how he's viewing his people. That's tough. I mean, you know, when, when you have a child named No Mercy, like, that's good if they're like an MMA fighter or a wrestler. But when they're a girl, a daughter, that makes, that makes elementary school a little difficult. But that's what we see happening here in this text. So this vivid and provocative calling does you and I a great favor, though. Because it gives us this view into the heart of God. And it gives us an immense and deep appreciation for how much God really does love us. And furthermore, it should cause you and I to fall on our knees in utter gratitude that God would choose for himself a marriage with somebody as imperfect as you and I. There are great insights into the love of God that we find throughout this book of Hosea. So let me just kind of extrapolate a few of those here today. Number one, I want you to write this down. I want you to notice God's radical, resilient love loves the unlovable. Again, look at that command there in verses 2 and 3. He says, go take for yourself a wife of ill repute or harlotry, or some of your translations use other different words. I'm trying to be as, as gentle as I can with that, with that Hebrew word that he's calling him to there, knowing we have some smaller folks in the room. But, but man, that's a tough call. Provocative. The word that he uses there to describe the type of wife that Hosea is called to uh, literally means a person of, 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 of promiscuity. And maybe equally as bad, her name is Gomer. Like That's bad too, right? I mean, you know, growing up, like Gomer was the guy that filled up cars at the filling station in Mayberry. You know? I don't know. You know, that, that illustration worked great in the first service. Now, you guys need to watch Andy Griffith. Y'all don't watch the Andy Griffith show? Okay. Every one of you at the altar uh, at the end of the service today, you need to do something about that. But, but uh, so what we see here is like, like Hosea, you know, God is, is, is calling Hosea to be faithful to someone that's going to be unfaithful. So God is saying, I want you, Hosea, to live out what I'm, I am experiencing with my people. I just want you to just kind of be there and just love constantly and consistently, knowing that it will really never be reciprocated for the one that you love. I want you to enter into what I'm experiencing here. You see, the scripture repeatedly points us to a God who loves in spite of the fact that his creation, his bride, you and I, we're not very loving. 
speak for myself. Someone who is prone to wonder, as the old hymn writer says, who can worship on Sundays and then run in the opposite direction on a Monday. But yet, that, there's God, like he's just there, faithful, loving, perpetually, strongly standing in his place, saying, when you get back, I will be here. And, and scripture points us to a God like that. Let me give you some examples here. For, let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible. I mean, even with Adam and Eve, they ultimately chose to love creature over creator, but yet God chose to love them even though they would reject him, did he not? Like he would remove them from his presence in chapter 3 of Genesis, but he would never remove his love for them. His love would go with them. Like Gomer, his creation proved to be unfaithful and unlovable. And even today, we all understand that because we're there. However, the relationship between creator and creation is saved because of a love that refuses to quit, a resilient love, the love of God. And then you keep reading in Scripture, you see then that, okay, so now God chooses for himself a nation of people called Israel who, like Gomer, would continually run in the arms of other lovers. Also like Gomer, Israel would eventually be enslaved and even when God rescued them and gave them a promised land, they would reject his kingship and they would place a crown on, on Saul's head. They would intermarry among unclean people. They would stain their land. They would complain constantly about the provisions of God. They were idol worshipers, man, lovers of pleasure and guilty of breaking every letter of the Mosaic law. But yet there's God just loving them, just faithfully loving them. And then you even get in the New Testament, you see this displayed in Christ as he comes as God in flesh into this very unlovable world. And the first thing he does is he chooses a group of unlovable disciples. Disciples who would argue among themselves about who was the greatest while Jesus is washing their feet. He, he would, they would deny they ever knew him. They would struggle with doubts and fears and angers and anxieties and worry. And even at the cross event, they would desert him. Their focus was more on expanding the kingdom of Israel instead of expanding the kingdom of God. But yet, even after Jesus defeats the grave, they would still not believe. They were hiding in fear, but yet he chose them. He chose to love them because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that God chooses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And just as he commanded Hosea to do, God also chose for himself, and here you come into the story, a tainted bride called the church, of which I am a member, of which you are a member. God chose not a bride in a white dress, did he? Rather, he chose a bride in black leather. He does not choose to love us, his church, because we are worthy of that love, but because he can make us worthy. The Bible says of us in Jeremiah 17, 9, that 
our hearts are deceitfully wicked. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There are none that understand. There are no one who seeks after God. For we all will turn aside. We have all together become unprofitable. There is nobody that does good, no, not even one. And yet God says, I love you. God holds the marriage together not because the bride is faithful and worthy, but because his love has made us worthy. Folks, I just can't get over that. I I cannot get over the fact that in spite of all the mistakes that I've made in my life, that God chose me. In June of 1984 at Cottage Hill Baptist Church in Pleasant Grove, Alabama, on a Thursday at Vacation Bible School as a sixth grader, God entered into that sanctuary through His Holy Spirit and He grabbed my heart and He said, I love you. And He saved me that morning. And a few years later, he called me to preach the gospel. And I've been serving in ministry uh, since I was 19 years old. And I cannot get over the fact that even though I have failed him time and time again, the reason why I'm so passionate about Jesus, the the reason why I step in pulpits all over the state and preach revivals and, and write books and all the things, the reason I do those things... Is because I can't get over the fact that God loves me though I am so unlovable. That God stays faithful to me though I am so unfaithful. Sometimes when we give our gospel presentations, we begin with the sinfulness of man. But I think that's a mistake. The reality is the origin of the gospel is found, first of all, in the love of God. You see... God chose us before we chose him. He loved you before you loved him. Jesus is the spotless lamb of God who chose for himself a blemished and wounded sheep like you and I. And I'm so thankful today that I don't have to become worthy of being loved. And God's love for me doesn't depend on me. You need to listen. God's love for you is bigger than your biggest mistake It is deeper than your lowest moments. It is brighter than your darkest decisions. And though you will, like Gomer, run in the arms of many lovers, the long arms of the resilient love of God is available and His strong grip of grace is stronger than your desire to run away. You see, God's radical, resilient love loves the unlovable. I'm grateful for that. But number two, I want you to notice this. God's radical, resilient love redeems the unredeemable. Look at chapter 3 of Hosea. Just flip one page over. I want you to see what's happened in this prophetic narrative. Because just as we predicted, this wife of ill repute who comes out of a life of prostitution, she goes back to her old ways. So by the time we get to chapter 3, something has happened in this marriage, and it is not good. Because essentially what we have here is a reset. It's like what God said to Hosea in chapter 1, he has to say it again in chapter 3. Why? Because Gomer has gone back to her old way of life. She's ran back to the brothel. She is in the arms of another lover. Back to old ways. Now we know that because look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, speaking, speaking to Hosea, the Lord said to me, go again. 
Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. That is in the Hebrew in the present active tense, which means it's happening right now as I'm speaking to you. The fact that God had to say to him, go again. You've done it before, now do it again. That's humiliating, is it not? Go again. But notice what he says here. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took the other gods and loves the raisin cakes of the pagans... So I, verse 2, Hosea says, So I went and I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, listen to the tenderness of this. I said to my wife, you shall stay with me many days. Don't go play the harlot. Don't have another man. Listen, Listen to what he says. So I will be towards you. You have a marriage covenant renewal, don't you? He was a lot nicer to her than I probably would have been. It says in verse 4, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. And afterwards the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Speaking of a time that was to come. Chapter 3 describes really what is a messed up marriage, a view into the depth of the unfaithfulness to which Hosea's bride had slid. And I want you to notice what happens here because it says in verse 2, so I bought her for myself again. That word bought in the Hebrew gives, gives the idea of having to haggle with the price of something. It's as if he was trying to talk down a car salesman on a used vehicle. That's that's the idea here. Can you imagine the humiliation of that? Having to go and haggle the price for your own wife and then pay with your own money for, for your own wife? Deeply humiliating. But what that tells us is she's been sold back into uh, into prostitution and she's gone and she's married this person and there's so much shame involved in this kind of transaction that's going on. Though Hosea had been faithful, I want you to notice he bore the price of her unfaithfulness. And it it all started when God said to him, go again and redeem her. Folks, 2,000 years ago, the father must have said the same thing to his son. Go and redeem my bride. Go again. Redeem my bride. 2,000 years ago in heaven, the father said to the son, go Purchase her from the slavery of sin. Redeem her through your own blood. And through the cross, God purchased his church, you and I, and redeemed us back to him. It cost him everything to do it. First John 4 10 says this, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Colossians 1, 19 through 22, 
Paul says, for it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross and you, as if Paul is pointing his finger at us, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. We can picture in Hosea 3, the groom seeking this unfaithful bride, passionately pursuing the one he loves, finding her in the worst places, doing the worst things, but redeeming and restoring her, taking off that black leather and putting on that white dress again, dressing her in purity. And friends, I want to remind you today that God's resilient love does the same for you and I. He seeks you, he finds you, he purchases you, he saves you. Though the bride was unfaithful, the groom was faithful. Though the marriage covenant was broken, it was not shattered. Because of the resilient love of the groom, we, the church, we are not a perfect people, but a people that he would make perfect through the buying and redeeming us back. And because of Calvary's cross, he has placed his bride, his church, once again in a place of purity. You see, when Jesus saves us, he disrobes us of our worldly adornment and he places that white dress called righteousness on us, the righteousness of Christ. He walks right into the heart of your sinfulness and he says, I have redeemed you, I bought you, come home with me. I am going to stay right here. I am going to love you and I am going to love you stubbornly and consistently no matter what you do. God will never love you more nor love you less than he does right now. He just loves. And some of you this morning need to know that. You need to be reminded of that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might can become the righteousness of God in him. God's resilient love loves the unlovable. God's resilient love redeems the unredeemable. There is no one unredeemable. But number three, and I'm closing right here. God's resilient love is faithful to the unfaithful. I want you to go to the end of this book and look at chapter 14, the very end of this book. At the very end of this book, God, through his prophet, is pointing to a time that is to come. That God's people will certainly be sent into exile in Assyria and Babylon, but there is coming a day that God says, I will bring you back home Matter of fact, in verse 1, he says in chapter 14, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, receive all graciously, for, he will, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Now skip to verse 4. He says, God says, here's the promise then. If you will come back, if you will do those things, Here's the promise. I will heal your backsliding. I will love you freely. For my anger will be turned away from you. 
I will be like the dew to Israel. You will grow like the lily. Your roots will be lengthened like Lebanon. Your branches shall spread. Your beauty will be like an olive tree. Your fragrance like Lebanon. And those who dwell under that shadow shall return and they shall be revived like grain, grow like a vine. Their scent shall be be like the wine of Lebanon. Verse number four in the New Living Translation says it this way. The Lord says, then I will heal you of your faithfulness. My love knows no bounds, for my anger is gone forever. Listen carefully, believer. Listen. He says, my love knows no bounds. Some of you need to hear that this morning. With Adam and Eve, even after the rejection of God, does he not come back to them? Does he not walk back into the garden even after they reject him? Does he not come back to them? Oh, he does. And when he does come back, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible tells us that he looks at Satan and he gives what scholars call the proto-evangelium. When he says to Satan, he will, he, he, he will crush your head even though you're going to strike his heel, pointing to Calvary. With the Jews, though He would send them away into captivity. He would eventually bring them back to the promised land and there he would remain with them because he is a faithful God who always comes back and he always stays and always remains. Just like Hosea did with Gomer. Just like God did with with his people in the garden. Just like he did with his people Israel. He did also in the New Testament. Though the world rejected him, the New Testament reveals the story of a creator who came to his creation in the flesh through Christ, walked among his own because he is a God who always comes back and always stays and always remains, just like Hosea did with Gomer. I've thought a lot about that and thought, man, look at this world we have right now. It is a mess. It is a total dumpster fire. It is faithless, sinful, and you're tempted to say unredeemable. But yet the promise of his return is prolifically announced in the New Testament. And it is not negated. It is not interrupted due to our unworthiness. Just as Hosea went to get his bride, listen carefully church, Just as Hosea went to get his bride from a corrupted world one day, here's what I know because the Bible tells me that the sky is going to break open and Jesus Christ is going to step out on the clouds and the dead in Christ shall be raised first and that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. Why? Because Jesus will make everything right that is wrong because he is a God who always comes back and always stays and always remains. He is faithful to the unfaithful. In this marriage between the bride and the groom, there is but one faithful to the covenant. And just as Hosea chose, pursued, and redeemed an unfaithful bride, so too does Jesus. For his love for you is greater than you can possibly imagine. You and I are the prodigal in the mud. He is the father holding the robe and the crown. 
Perhaps it can be said the biggest problem with churches today is not that they don't have enough good programs and, and it's not that they don't have nice buildings. It might just be said that they have forgot the price that was paid to redeem them and the depth of love it took to make all that possible. I love the fact this morning that we sang Stuart Townend's song that he penned in 1995 with these amazing lyrics called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It is my favorite song. I think about it all the time. And though we sing it, I want to remind you again of the words as we close of that song. When it says, How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch's treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That's my song. In a book called The Works of Love, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, I think illustrates what I've been trying to say to you so perfectly. In that book, as he describes the love of God, how it comes to us and stays with us and remains with us, he pictures a man on his deathbed in the last moments of his life. And some of his friends are called to his room to reminisce about their old times together. And they come into that room and they enjoy conversation. They reminisce. They have a few laughs. They shake hands with them for the last time. But, but eventually they have to just kind of walk, walk away. And then Kierkegaard writes of this man's children who then enter the room who with tears in their eyes remember the times they had as a family with dad. And they reminisce and they hug and they embrace and they weep and they hold his hand. But eventually even his own children have to let go of him. And then Kierkegaard said, and then there's his wife who enters into that room and spends those last moments of this man's life with him. When they remember their dates, they remember their love. They remember their moments together. And they cry, and they kiss, and they embrace. But even she has to let go of him. But then Kierkegaard says, but then there's one in the room who unlike 
his friends and unlike his children and unlike his spouse, comes to attend and holds him and says to him, I've come to stay with you and I will remain with you. Hold my hand. It's time to walk home. And that perfectly illustrates the love of God who came to you, friend, when you were unlovable, when you maybe were unforgivable, when you might have thought you were unredeemable. But just as Hosea went in and pulled out that money, gave, paid the price, Jesus did the same for you on Calvary's cross. The Father sent the Son to give His life as an atonement for you. And He comes to you and He stays with you. And unlike everyone else, remains with you. Will you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever known a love like that? Have you ever really known how deep the Father's love is for you? If you've never known the love of God, I'm not asking if you're a church member. I'm not asking you how many times you've read the Bible. I'm not asking you were you raised in church. I'm asking you, do you really know the depth and the height and the width and the breadth of the amazing love of God? Do you know? If you don't know, you can know today. When we give this invitation, we're going to sing. And I want to ask you to step out from where you're at. And I want you to come forward. And I want you to come and take one of your pastors by the hand and say, I want to know this love. You come. Others, you may need to rededicate your life to the Lord because, frankly, you have grown cold to a love so hot. Your life has just become one religious ritual after another and you've lost a sense of what it took for God to redeem you. Would you come this morning and say, Oh Lord, help me know again in a fresh way the depth of the love of God. Would you come this morning? Let's stand to our feet right now. I'm going to pray and after I pray, we're going to sing and you're going to come. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to preach here this morning. Do what you want to do in the hearts of your people. Holy Spirit, have free reign on this place. Lord, I pray the enemy would have no place here. We rebuke him from this place, from every heart, from every mind, so the Holy Spirit has free reign on this place. You are God who loves us. Come, reveal yourself in a strong way this morning to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.